It's Friday, June 30th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, an alarming development out of Ukraine, but not about the war. It's about bacteria, and it's got researchers deeply concerned. Second, an update on the Chinese spy balloon saga. The Pentagon is saying this morning that the balloon neither collected nor transmitted any intelligence. I'll explain why that is pretty odd. Third, we've got two Supreme Court cases to talk about. The first is a unanimous decision regarding a religious liberty and accommodation. And the second case is the ruling on affirmative action. Later, we close out the podcast with my analysis and opinion on that court decision about racial quotas in America. I'm going to offer up three recent developments in the country of South Africa that will show you what life is like in a country that is wholly operated on affirmative action. And then you can tell me if that is the kind of country that we want to live in. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. There is a strange bacterial outbreak in Ukraine, and it is leaving doctors and researchers deeply concerned because it is showing some remarkable resistance to antibiotic treatment. So here's what we know this morning as captured by Medical Express News and the medical journal The Lancet Infectious Diseases. And let's start with a quote that, frankly, you never want to hear from a doctor or a scientist. Quote, I have never encountered a bacteria as resistant as this before. End quote. Right, that is Christian Reisbeck. He's a, a professor of clinical bacteriology at Lund University in Sweden. And Mr. Reisbeck was uh, actually called to Ukraine to look into this by a Dr. Oleksandr Nazarchuk. He's a microbiologist at a university in Ukraine about 150 miles southwest of Kiev. Now, Dr. Nazarchuk uh, reached out to this Swedish professor because he was seeing a very troubling number of cases of antibiotic-resistant strains in patients in at least three hospitals all throughout Ukraine. And so this professor uh, in Sweden gathered a group of his colleagues and began taking samples of this various bacteria in Ukraine. And here is something interesting that he uh, and they found, right? All of the patients had picked up this uh, infection at a hospital. In other words, these were hospital-acquired infections, or HAIs, and they are increasingly common even here in the United States. In fact, just three weeks ago, two patients died after an outbreak in a Seattle hospital with one of these HAIs, which actually started back in October, but has actually lingered ever since. Indeed, that outbreak has now killed 12 people. But in Ukraine, they were seeing something different than, shall we say, run-of-the-mill HAIs, right? This bacteria was remarkably resistant to all antibiotics, and there were an unusual number of cases of them, and here's the data on that. Researchers collected samples from 141 patients, of which 133 were adults who sustained injuries during the war. The other eight were infants or children who were diagnosed with pneumonia. Now, those patients were admitted, again, to three different hospitals in different parts of Ukraine. And the researchers found two things amongst the samples. First, there was a shocking number of bacteria that were resistant to even newly developed antibiotics that are not yet available to the marketplace. Second, nearly 10% of the samples contained bacteria that were resistant to even a last resort antibiotic known as colistin. 
And as the Swedish researcher said, quote, while we have encountered similar cases in India and China before, nothing compares to the extent of resistance observed in this study. The magnitude of the situation here surpasses anything that we have seen before, end quote. They then added that more work needs to be done to understand why this is happening. And frankly, we need to get into this very soon because the researchers said that if left unaddressed, it could affect the rest of Europe, even in those people with otherwise healthy and well-functioning immune systems. So those are the vaccine data, ladies and gentlemen, coming out of Ukraine this morning. No opinion or analysis to offer you. Instead, I'm putting this on your radar because it is certainly on mine now. I'll keep you posted. With that, let's continue with our international news this morning, talking about Chinese spy balloons. Now, most of us remember when last winter, January and February, now that old Chinese spy balloon floated over much of North America before it was shot down. It certainly captured a lot of American press, but there was a very important global implication to this story, right? On February 7th, the U.S. State Department held an emergency briefing for 40 nations to tell them about China's spy balloon program. And that's because Beijing had conducted dozens of these kinds of spy balloon missions since at least 2018, covering virtually every continent. Well, this morning, we've got an update on this, uh, well, America's encounter with a spy balloon. The U.S. Pentagon is now saying that the balloon wasn't spying at all. Here we go. Quote, we assess that it did not collect intelligence while it was flying over the U.S., end quote. That was from uh, Pentagon spokesman Brigadier, uh, uh, Brigadier General rather Pat Ryder. However, the Wall Street Journal is reporting this morning that the balloon did try to collect intelligence. In fact, it was able to do so. But the journal is saying it did not manage to, to uh, transmit that intel or information back to Beijing. By the way, the reasons for this lack of transmission, it's not exactly clear this morning. The journal is saying that it could have been a technical malfunction on the balloon itself, of course, or that was taken by the U.S. military. But whichever side is right on this, in other words, the Pentagon or the journal about transmitting this intel, right? nobody contests the fact that the balloon was designed to spy. right? And that's because we are getting a much better sense of what was on that balloon, in other words, the hardware. Investigators have found a mix of off-the-shelf products plus more specialized Chinese gadgetry, things like sensors. All in all, the investigators are saying that the gear had the ability to collect photos, video, radar data, and other information with a transmission capability to go all the way back to China. By the way, if you want to see the spy balloon and its uh, bits and pieces, well, the Pentagon actually wants to show it to you. The Journal is reporting that they have asked the White House on a number of occasions for permission to do so, following the president back in 2017 when they revealed Iranian weapons to the public at a press conference. But as of this morning, the White House has, uh, well, to use a phrase, shot down that idea. One last thing to note for you. Apparently, there is a current intel assessment that the balloon didn't originally intend to follow its course over America as it eventually did. In other words, over those sensitive military sites. But that, quote, the Chinese instead took advantage of the path that they, well, found themselves on, end quote. And just to confirm, the balloon's course, accidental course, it took them over Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana, which is the home of a key nuclear set of missiles. 
And while there, the balloon was conducting Circle 8 motions above to loiter and collect. Although, again, the Pentagon is saying that, no, that didn't happen. They collected nothing. So those are the facts and data this morning on this ongoing spy balloon saga. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion. So, folks, something is very strange with this latest news, right? Back in February and again in April, a variety of press outlets, including NBC News and CNN, plus my own sources, were all saying the same, right? The balloon was collecting intel over the United States and transmitting at least some of it back to Beijing real time. In fact, that is why the State Department briefed those 40 nations on the threat just days after the balloon was shot down. But now we have this, a new assessment from the Pentagon that actually, no, there was no intel collected. There was no intel transmitted. And the balloon's path, well, that was just a big old accident. So folks, this alleged news if we remind ourselves, it comes just weeks after Joe Biden said that the balloon spying saga was, quote, more embarrassing than it was intentional, end quote. While at the same time, his uh, secretary of state, Anthony Blinken, added that, quote, that chapter of the spy balloon saga should be closed, end quote. So here's what I think is really going on. The White House wants to bury this story because Mr. Biden is clearly trying to manage or otherwise reset his relationship with China. Now, we can debate why he's doing that or whether that is smart, but I think that the totality of evidence is pretty clear this morning. The balloon absolutely collected intel and it transmitted that intel. And no amount of backpedaling or sort of flim flam from the Pentagon is going to change that. And with that, let's take our first break of the morning. So enjoy the following messages from our sponsoring partners, remembering that if you don't hear my voice telling you about a product or a service, then I do not endorse it. We'll be right back. Folks, there are two things that I speak a lot about on The Right Report. First, we live in a troubled world, especially with China and the prospect of war with Beijing. Second, I talk about America's obesity crisis and how important it is to find ways to exercise and eat well. Thankfully, I've got a solution for both. ArcSeedKits.com, a provider of high-quality heirloom seeds that give you food security and a healthy body. Now, some of you have asked me, Brian, why should I pay a premium for heirloom seeds when I can buy cheaper stuff from online outlets or big box stores? Well, Arc Seed Kits give you the type of seeds that our grandparents had, right? You can save seeds from each year's garden crop and replant them year after year. Plus, Arc Seed Kits have all of the variety you need, folks. Listen to this. Six types of beans, four types of squash, seven tomatoes, two corn, two peas. Whoo! Don't even get me started on the root crops, like beets and rutabaga and carrots. So all in all, we're talking about 65 varieties of fruits and vegetables. And here's the best part. These seeds come from a family-owned farm in northern Michigan. No mystery seeds that you might get from an online or big box store. So do yourself a favor and buy the all-in-one seed kit. Go to arcseedkits.com. That's arc, like Noah's Ark, arcseedkits.com. Enter right as a promo code, that is W-R-I-G-H-T, and you will get 10% off your order. So be prepared and invest in food security. Go to arcseedkits.com today. 
Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a look at two U.S. Supreme Court cases with rulings on both released yesterday. And the first was about religious liberty and accommodation. And as reported by Politico and Fox News, it involved a man who worked for the U.S. Postal Service, but he didn't want to work on Sundays. He is a Christian, and that day for him was reserved for church and family. Well, the U.S. Postal Service apparently was not happy about that. And after a period of enduring some hostile work environment, the man, the Christian, he quit. And then he sued. Well, yesterday, the Supreme Court agreed with him, finding that if you are a religious person and you request accommodation for your faith, like taking off Sundays for the Sabbath, then your employer must accommodate that request. That is... So long as your employer doesn't have to incur substantial increased costs or create an undue economic hardship. All right, so that's the ruling, folks. All right, unanimous at that, by the way, nine to zero. And to further explain this, let me now pivot away from facts and data to my opinion and analysis. So this ruling, folks, is pretty important, certainly for American society, for two reasons. First, it clarifies and confirms that earnestly held religious beliefs have to be recognized and respected, right? For years, religious folks, especially conservatives, have argued that their constitutional rights were constantly under attack by a more secular society. And the court is increasingly saying, yes, that is true. And we are going to protect the religious people of this country. So, for instance, there was a Supreme Court case last year of a public high school football coach who wanted to pray on the field after games. Well, the school actually said no, but the Supreme Court said yes. Or we could consider the case of a religious man in Boston who was denied by the city a chance to fly a Christian flag, but they were allowing other flags to fly, like gay pride flags. Well, Boston said he couldn't fly his Christian flag, uh, the Supreme Court said, yeah, he can. Finally, we have the case of religious parents in Maine who wanted to use publicly funded vouchers to send their children to a private Christian school. The state said, no, you can't. Uh, but the Supreme Court said, yeah, you can. In other words, this latest ruling, uh, which, by the way, is called Groff versus DeJoy, it makes it even more clear that religion and religious accommodation, those are not just things to be considered in a modern, more secular society, but rather they must be an immovable part of our country. So as ever, let's see how this plays out over the coming months and years. So for instance, one thing I, I reflected on as I read the ruling, there's a tricky question related to this case about how exactly we define a substantially increased cost when a religious employee you know, asks for these uh, religious accommodations. It seems a little bit, of, uh, well, subjective. And that is why I suspect we are going to see some lawsuits on that particular issue in the years to come. Which takes us to our second Supreme Court case of the morning. And this one dominated the headlines all day yesterday and I suspect all day today. The court ruled six to three that colleges and universities cannot use race-based policies in their admissions process. In other words, the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action. According to Reuters News Service and others, about 40% of America's higher ed institutions use these now illegal policies, all of which judge acceptance based on the color of one's skin. And that includes two litigants in the case, Harvard University and the University 
of North Carolina. However, what's interesting is that six states had already banned this practice well before the ruling yesterday, and that includes Arizona, California, Florida, Idaho, Michigan, Nebraska, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, and Washington. So the next question on the minds of many folks in America, certainly in academia, is what comes next? Well, the court said this next critical sentence, folks, quote, nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected the applicant's life, end quote. To which Harvard University immediately said that they would do. And how they worded it was pretty cheeky. Basically, they were saying it was a loophole in the ruling that they planned to exploit. Ah, but the court, (laughs) they were one step ahead of them. They also warned in their ruling, warning these schools that they, quote, may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime that we hold unlawful today, end quote. In other words, sorry, Harvard, higher ed universities around the country are going to have to thread the racial needle here with lots of lawsuits to come. No doubt about that. Now, as you would expect on this issue of race and affirmative action, we saw lots of either joyful or outraged responses. Typically, folks on the political left were outraged and folks on the right were relatively joyful. As just one example of this, former President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama weighed in with Mrs. Obama saying, quote, my heart breaks today for any young person out there who is wondering what their future now holds, end quote. Finally, media outlets on the left were equally outraged. For instance, there was this tweet from the New York Times, the ruling, quote, all but ensures that elite institutions become whiter and more Asian and less black and Latino, end quote. Okay, so if you are wondering why the New York Times might argue that, that white and Asian folks might especially benefit from this ruling, well, let me tell you two things. Americans of Asian descent tend to have higher test scores for the ACT and the SAT, right? And those are two key exams that colleges tend to use for admissions, So if schools now revert back to things like grades and test scores, then yes, you will probably see a benefit from this ruling for Asian Americans. Second, the claim that this ruling might benefit white folks, it's true, but perhaps not for the reason you think. You see, in the nine states that ban affirmative action, well, they have already started to lean more heavily on economic status when trying to ensure diversity in their admissions. Well, as it turns out, that is good for a lot of white people, right? And that is because of this fact that you might not know. According to U.S. Census data flagged yesterday by the Wall Street Journal, there are more than three times as many white households earning under $50,000 than there are black or Hispanic households earning under $50,000. In other words, being poor is not just a black or brown issue. Right In terms of raw or gross numbers, white families suffer the most. And they will likely benefit from this ruling if colleges and universities emphasize socioeconomic status instead of just or largely race. So, there you have it, folks. The facts and data related to this very divisive ruling that was issued yesterday. Now, I'd like to pivot to my analysis and opinion on this. But before I do, let's take a final break of the morning coming back to discuss my personal reflection on this Supreme Court case. 
And ever, as ever, rather, as I do, please remember that if, if you don't hear my voice on these next messages, I do not endorse it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report, where, we, uh, folks, we are discussing yesterday's Supreme Court ruling that outlawed affirmative action for America's colleges and universities. I'd like to now pivot from facts and data to my personal analysis and opinion on this decision. And to do this, I'd like us to imagine that we are in the White House this morning, we are sitting in the Oval Office, and as ever, you are the president, and you're wrestling with what to say to your fellow countrymen or how to process this ruling. So let me offer you this. In the preamble to the Constitution, the founders of this country used these next words. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, let me stop there, a more perfect union. By very definition, that means that we are imperfect, right? The founders knew that. In fact, they knew that we would be imperfect forever. So there was no finish line on striving for a more perfect union. Now, the rest of the preamble laid out the goals on how to, to make it more perfect, and the Constitution offered the rules and the rights to get there. But one thing is very clear. Not every solution was given to us and every for every problem, right? And certainly not on the issue of race and slavery, which is often called America's original sin. So the charge that we were given was to use discernment and logic and reason and the rule of law to right those old wrongs and ultimately create a more perfect union for everybody, irrespective of skin color. But stepping back for a moment, let's remember that we are not alone in that struggle of creating a more perfect union in the long shadows of slavery and racial injustice. It is not just America that struggles with either of those sins, right? Consider South Africa. It was led by a white uh, apartheid government for many decades and then that came to an end back in the 1990s with a party called the African National Congress or ANC coming to power. And those folks promised to remedy the decades of white rule by embracing a form of affirmative action, and that is racial quotas. And they started doing that over 25 years ago. So let's ask ourselves this morning, how's it going? Do affirmative action and racial quotas bring about a more perfect union for everybody? Well, let's take a closer look. I'm going to give you three examples of what happens when you run your nation on these kinds of racial policies. And let's start with something that might seem trivial, and that's sports. Yesterday afternoon, a youth rugby team from Western Province was disqualified in South Africa because they failed a racial quota. You see, Western Province and all of the other teams in this youth group, they have to have a certain number of players of color on their squads, 11 players in all. But on Monday and Tuesday of this week, some of those players were injured and they couldn't play. And then another team called the Bulls, well, they protested, saying that Western Province was in violation of the racial quotas. Well, then an investigation ensued, and on Wednesday... The whole team of Western Province was tossed out of consideration all because they violated racial quotas. And by the way, all of that is based on reporting from the SouthAfrican.com. Next, let's talk about water. 
Two weeks ago, the South African government issued uh, some proposed regulations on how much water a business can use. And they base it on racial quotas. In other words, the more water you want, the more the business has to be owned by a black person or black people. To put numbers to that, if you are, say, a rancher or farmer or mining operator who wants 250,000 cubic meters of water, your company has to have at least 25% black ownership. If you want more than 500,000 cubic meters of water, your business has to be 75% owned by black folks. That was reported a little over two weeks ago by Newsweek. Finally, let's talk about businesses in general. In mid-April, South African President Ramaphosa signed the Employment Equity uh, Amendment Act, right? And that empowers the government's ministries to set racial quotas on a company's hiring decisions. And they created this new law because of a recent study. Uh, it found, well, they called it a problem, right? Top management positions in South African businesses were heavily dominated by white males, and so now the South African government gets to set what it is calling transformation goals, where a company is transformed racially by the government, setting quotas based on different occupations, seniority, and even in, in different regions of the country. But to be very clear, these quotas can be changed at any time. It is up to the whims of the government. So maybe a business is in compliance today, but not tomorrow. And then what? Do they have 30 days or something to fix the problem? Or does the government shut them down? Maybe take them over? And just to emphasize, folks, none of these quotas are based on knowledge or skill or merit. All of these employment decisions have to be based on skin color. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's now imagine that you were back in the Oval Office this morning wrestling with this latest Supreme Court decision and wondering about what a future of America might look like with or without racial quotas. Well, now you have three different data points. It's from a laboratory of a country that is ruling itself and its economy based largely or mostly on skin color. And by the way, they also call it racial equity. That's a phrase you probably hear a lot of here in the United States. So let me ask you something. Should America become South Africa? Do you want sports teams disqualified because one too many of their black players got injured? Or do you want the allocation of water based on skin color? Or do you want the government to tell businesses who they can hire, fire, and promote based on a preferred shade of skin tone? And by the way, if you do, just one practical question here. When the government official goes to that, say, sports team, or that water user, or that business, how do they decide which skin tone is black or dark enough? Earnestly, do you hold up a swatch of colors and compare it to, say, a rugby player's arm or a business owner's hand and say, no, too white, or no, that's not black enough? In other words, does any of this sound like a country that is making itself a more perfect union for all of its citizens? Because that's kind of the point. Well, as you make that call, ladies and gentlemen, or Mr. or Madam President, I'll make my voice known. 
Racial quotas are not the way to achieve either uh, racial harmony or racial progress. You can go to South Africa this morning for proof. But be careful. If you're white, you might want to pack your own water. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you on Monday, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.